folks, Luke here. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today is a solo one and I'm going to be talking about the various indices that we often see in the health and fitness industry. So the reason I'm doing this is because I am putting on a webinar this coming Tuesday, the 21st of April in 2020, if you're listening to this later on. Uh, And I'm going to talk about satiety index in that webinar. And so I thought, well, maybe I should actually explain what the satiety index is because it's often a bit misunderstood. And then I thought, well, so is the glycemic index and so is the BMI, the body mass index. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through these various indices and just give you an idea about how they're supposed to be used because I think they're often misused. And we'll kind of go from there. Uh, I'm not going to start with the satiety index. I think I'm going to start with the BMI and we'll go from there. Okay, so BMI is the body mass index. You're probably aware of it. And obviously it categorizes people into normal weight, underweight, overweight, obese, morbidly obese based on your height to weight ratio. And it comes under a lot of fire uh, in the social media realm because people tend to go, well, I'm a bodybuilder, I'm big and lean, I got lots of muscle, but I'm overweight. And so the BMI is a crock of shit, it doesn't work. Now I'm in that category, I'm on the borderline between overweight and obese based on my weight for my height. However, um, I'm much leaner than the average person. And so it's clearly not an indication of how much body fat I'm carrying. But I'm an exception and most of the people who are in the fitness industry or really into fitness are exceptions. They're not representative of the average in the population. So we have to bear that in mind. Uh, If we think about any of these indices that we're going to talk about today, we need to be aware of something called a normal distribution, which is otherwise known as a bell curve. So most people will fall in the middle around the average or the mean. Uh, And of course, on either end, you'll have some people who move to the right of that curve and some people who move to the left of that curve. So most people will be average at most things. Some people will respond really well to some training methods and they are called hyper responders. And some people won't respond as well as the average results in a study and they'll be called uh, non-responders. But there's a continuum there. Most people will fall in the middle within what one standard deviation. And so that means that we sort of cluster around the middle of this curve. And if you don't know the the sort of bell curve I'm talking about, just give it a quick Google. Um, They call it a bell curve because that's what it's shaped like. Essentially out towards the tails or the end of the curve is where we get the outliers. And honestly, although it might not seem like it because we're probably in a little fitness bubble, if you're listening to this podcast, most people who are really into the fitness industry are technically an outlier or they're, they're like at least, you know, beyond one standard deviation from the mean, meaning that like they're probably, you know, in the 30% of people who don't fall within the middle of the normal distribution or the average result. So with that said, applying BMI to those people is certainly not illegitimate Uh, It's not a a wrong way of using the BMI. The BMI is really designed to be used at a population level to give a quick and easy prediction. If we think about what it's being used for, we can't get people into a doctor's office and perform a DEXA on them, right? We can't get people into a doctor's office and even perform a basic 
body fat analysis, like a bioelectrical impedance that you get on the scales even. Most people don't really even go to the doctor unless they really need to. So if we needed a quick and easy tool for scientists and for doctors to understand more about a population's uh, body weight and how fat they might be, then this is a really nice and easy tool. Anybody can go and calculate their BMI and chances are you've probably done it before. And if you haven't, it takes like five seconds to do. There's calculators all over the place. You can do it without a calculator as well. There's no fancy formula to it. So it's something that is designed to be used without any equipment that is quick and easy to do. You don't even need something like a tape measure. That requires that we have a really simple formula. And of course, because it's simple, it means that it's not gonna catch a lot of the details. It's not asking, okay, is this person overweight in terms of having too much body fat or do they just have a lot of lean mass? It doesn't ask that question and it's not designed to because we're looking for a real quick and easy result. Obviously, if you are a bodybuilder and you're pretty lean and you've got a lot of muscle and your doctor sees that your BMI is like 29, meaning that you're overweight on the verge of being obese, well, they're going to go, look, I don't think it's an issue because clearly a lot of this is muscle. On the other hand, if you are clearly not exercising, then it's going to be an issue. So it does require a little bit of interpretation. That's not very difficult to do. For some reason, people get really up in arms about it and they say BMI is a crock of shit and it doesn't work, but they don't seem to take into account the fact that it's not designed to reduce your entire lifestyle down to a single number. It's designed to give a quick and easy calculation that we can use for research purposes, that we can use for general survey purposes, and that the average person can use without having to do any fancy tests, without having to do any fancy formula. It's just nice and quick and easy. So that's BMI, it's pretty straightforward. And, and a lot of these concepts are gonna carry over into the glycemic index and the satiety index in that it's designed to give us a general idea about something. And then guess what? We have to use our noodles and put that into context. There's no single number that's going to take care of every single context situation for a human being, which happens to be a, a, an extremely complex product of environment and genes and biology. So with that said, let's move on to the glycemic index because it is a little bit more complex than the BMI is. It's got a little bit more that we have to think about. So basically the way the glycemic index works is it's designed to help us understand how much a food will alter our blood glucose. Now, blood glucose is maintained in a really strict range in the body. It has this homeostatic range that it must remain in. So it's just this band that you have to keep your blood glucose in. If your blood glucose gets too high, it's pretty dangerous and it can actually result in organ damage and death. And that's what happens with diabetics often. If it gets too low, uh, it can do a similar thing. It essentially starves your brain of, of much needed glucose and then it dies as well. So having your glucose in the blood too high or too low is very, very dangerous for your health and the body works really hard to maintain it in a certain range. Uh, now, the food we eat can raise our blood glucose, as you probably know, and the, the ideal situation for many people is to kind of keep the blood glucose controlled uh, pretty evenly. Now, most of us can do that okay without any problems, but it's interesting to researchers to understand what foods raise blood glucose the most and how can we manipulate that in the diet. 
So what the glycemic index does is it gives 50 grams of carbohydrate from a particular food to a fasted subject. And then the researchers or the doctor will observe the blood glucose response and compare it with pure glucose. And then we get uh, an index number that basically tells us like, how much does this food raise your blood glucose compared to pure glucose? Um, now there are other sort of refinements of the glycemic index that have also been introduced. Things like the glycemic load of a food, which adjusts for the portion size of the food. So to give you an example, if we wanted to get 50 grams of carbohydrates from carrots, it doesn't really represent a realistic portion size um, compared to getting 50 grams of carbohydrates from like ice cream or something like that. So it's it tries to match that and adjust for the portion size of a typical food. Uh, and so glycemic load is a little bit more nuanced than that. Essentially, it runs into some of the similar issues as glycemic index. So it's useful for trying to standardize the data for us to give us some data points for comparison, but the glycemic index of foods is really highly contextual and it's extremely prone to variance due to the individual situations uh, that might arise in real life. So of course, if you are trying to measure GI, we need to standardize that result. And so like I said, the subjects come in from an overnight fast. In other words, they've uh, you know eaten their last meal, they've gone to bed, woken up, and they're not allowed to eat any food until they get to the testing facility. They are then administered the amount of food that they need to get 50 grams of carbohydrate from that food. They eat it and then over the course of the next several hours, their blood glucose is measured. And so from that, we can determine the glycemic index of the food. There's a lot of factors that can affect the GI response in an individual. Some things off the top of my head, what your last meal was and the one before that can affect the glycemic index or your, your glucose response of the food that you're eating now. It depends how long ago your last few meals were. It depends on the type and duration of exercise you might have done in the last couple of days. It depends on the general macronutrient composition of your diet. Like, do you mostly eat low carb? Do you mostly eat high carb? Because that actually changes the way that you oxidize carbohydrates or fats. Um, it depends on your current body composition. It depends how quickly you eat your food, how well you chew it. Um, it depends how stressed you are, what your, your general hormonal status is at the time of ingestion. And most importantly, I think it depends on what you eat your particular food with. What is the entire meal composition that you're eating with? This is the largest and most obvious drawback of the glycemic index concept is that you know, if we wanted to measure the glycemic index of carrots, we can say, okay, here is enough carrots to give you 50 grams of carbohydrates, eat them, and then we'll measure the blood glucose response. But of course, most people are not eating carrots by themselves most of the time. What they're doing is they're eating them as part of a meal and they've probably prepared them in a certain way. They've eaten a meal probably like three or four hours before that. And they may have trained before that. But fundamentally, they are eating mixed meals. And so giving you potatoes or rice or pasta or whatever in isolation does not reflect a real life situation. So of course, just like BMI, we have these contextual situations where the GI doesn't really work. Now, of course, it's still really handy to give us a concept of which foods might affect your blood glucose more. Um, it, it's, it's pretty obvious from the, the glycemic index that more refined carbohydrates tend to raise blood glucose more when given in isolation. Of course, mixing that with a meal 
that has more fiber or fat or whatever in it is going to change that glycemic index. But the general concept of those simpler carbohydrates having more potential to raise blood glucose still holds more or less true. So, you know, it's one of those things where, again, it's not going to apply a lot to real life, but it's something that can be used and put into context and then utilized to to make a a contextual decision. Uh, And so it's not a useless thing, but it's certainly something that needs to be taken with a lot of grain of salt, so to speak. So from here, we get to the satiety index. And this one to me is the most interesting one. Of course, satiety is something that is largely misunderstood. Essentially, satiety is the the interaction between our appetite and how satisfied we feel from our food. So we're basically driven to eat by these hunger signals. And when we eat, our brain recognizes that we have eaten food and we have this negative feedback loop engaged that reduces our hunger. And that's essentially what we call satiety. So we have multiple sort of avenues that can Uh, contribute to satiety. And that's what makes this a really complex topic that is even more contextual than the previous two indices that I've spoken about. There's things like uh, presence of food in the mouth, the taste, the texture, the sensory experience that we have when we eat food. We have the, the volume of food in the stomach, and that sort of invokes some sensation of pressure and, and touch within the stomach. We also have the actual presence of various nutrients like glucose or fatty acids or amino acids in the gut that can influence the hormonal signaling to the brain to tell your brain, hey, we're full at the moment. Now, the satiety index itself was developed in 1995. This is when it was first presented, at least in the literature by Holt et al. Uh, The paper was called the Satiety Index of Common Food. And essentially what they did in this study was groundbreaking. And it's, it's obviously permeated through the literature till today and beyond, I'm sure. So in this study, subjects ate fixed calorie portions of 38 different foods, and then their perceived hunger was recorded for each food. Um, We had subsequent studies basically building a lot on this concept, but this was really the foundation paper. It was pretty interesting. Essentially, what the this is a direct quote from the study that the scientists ended up Uh, coming up with, the results show that the isoenergetic servings of different foods differ greatly in their satiating capacities. This is relevant to the treatment and prevention of overweight and obesity. Essentially, what they're saying is, you know, 100 calories of ice cream is different to 100 calories of bread in terms of how satisfied it makes you. And that's essentially what they did. So a lot of the different foods that they, uh, they used can, like, it's not obviously a an exhaustive list, which is a bit of a problem, but at the same time, it gives us some general analogs of various foods. So they actually split them up into various categories. They had bakery products like uh, croissants, donuts, cookies, white bread. They had snacks and confectionery. They had a Mars bar in there. They had yogurt, ice cream, jelly beans. Uh, They had some cereals in there. So some like brand name breakfast cereals like Special K, um, Sustain, cornflakes. They had some protein rich foods cheese, eggs, fish, steak, that kind of thing. They had some carbohydrate-rich foods like potatoes. Uh, they compared wholemeal bread with white bread. They compared white pasta with uh, with brown pasta. They had brown rice and white rice, which is all very interesting. And then they had some fruits as well. So bananas, grapes, oranges, that kind of thing. 
And so the idea of the satiety index is that they give white bread a score of 100 and then everything else is given a score relative to that. So white bread is kind of like the standard and then we can say how much more satisfying something is than white bread or how much less satisfying it is than white bread. So it's quite a, an interesting concept over there. And now this runs into some similar issues that we had with the glycemic index where of course, we don't eat foods in isolation. We eat them as part of an entire meal. But some of these foods certainly do get eaten by themselves or eaten as part of a meal that is uh, not particularly varied. So for example, if you're gonna eat a croissant, you're generally not gonna eat that alongside a salad or something like that, or you're not gonna have it with a lot of protein. You might have a bit of ham and cheese with it or something like that. But generally speaking, it's not gonna be eaten with too much else other than maybe like some butter or something like that. And a croissant is actually was the lowest satiety index score on the original paper, which is quite interesting. You know, however, if you're going to eat something like uh, a steak, it's quite likely that you're going to have that alongside other stuff. Most people would probably eat their steak alongside some kind of vegetable or, you know, maybe some mashed potato or white rice or something like that. And so steak has a pretty good satiety index, it's quite high, and at the same time, we're adding on some other stuff that also has a reasonably high satiety index, things like potatoes, which scored the highest by far out of anything else. So we have to think about the entire composition of our diet and how we're gonna mix and match these different foods. Now, one of the ways we can actually start to utilize this in a practical sense is coming up with a list of foods that are pretty high on the satiety index and essentially just selecting foods from there. And what this enables us to do is to start eating without necessarily weighing our food. If we're able to listen to our hunger signals to be reasonable about how much we eat uh, without actually weighing and tracking our food, then we can avoid this weighing and tracking conundrum by selecting foods that we know tend to be more satisfying. And I think a lot of people have probably heard things like potatoes are really high on the satiety list. So having like baked potatoes instead of white rice or white bread as your carbohydrate source in a meal is a really good move because that ends up being a higher satiety index. And if you eat to satisfaction, you will eat less calories. Uh, same thing, like most people will recognize that ice cream or croissants or cookies or whatever are pretty low on the satiety index. It's easy to eat a lot of them. Uh, the old saying of having a dessert stomach is certainly ringing true here because if we look back at the definition of satiety, it's when we're driven by a hunger signal, we eat and then we reduce hunger and we don't want to eat anymore. Well, things that are really palatable like croissants or ice cream tend to override these hunger signals. And so even though you might be full and you don't wanna eat any more white fish and potatoes, you could certainly eat more ice cream or more cookies or anything of that nature. So intuitively we do know which of these foods tend to be higher on the satiety index, but I think it's also helpful if you're looking to reduce your reliance on tracking every single thing that you eat to basically construct your diet around the satiety index to a certain extent. And if you only have those foods that are high on the satiety index in your house, it kind of gives you this liberating effect where, okay, there's a limited number of foods that I'm kind of allowing myself to eat, but at the same time, I can eat as much of those foods as I like. And we call this ad libitum or ad libitum dieting. Ad libitum dieting is something that is, or that phrase is used a lot in the literature, and it means eating uh, freely. So when we 
work out things like, okay, how much uh, does a carbohydrate affect your appetite or something like that? What researchers will do is they'll give people a certain amount of food and they'll say, okay, you're free to eat as much as you like. And then they measure how much food those people are eating. So ad libitum diet is essentially how most people eat. And if you eat like that, then you tend to fall victim to some of these foods that are low on the satiety index, things like junk foods, quote unquote, cake, donuts, cookies, that kind of thing. However, if you skew it so that you have higher satiety index foods and you eat freely, it means that although you're not limiting yourself to the amount you can eat because you've limited yourself to the types of foods you can eat, you end up eating less overall calories and you can control your weight a little bit easier. This is particularly useful when we're looking at things like trying to transition away from tracking if you're ending up having a psychological dependence on it and you don't really feel like you want to track for a while. It, it's really helpful in social situations when you're picking things off a menu that um, you know are going to leave you a bit more satisfied. Uh, there's tons of different ways you can use this kind of thing. And that's actually kind of the, the subject of my uh, webinars to go through and detail all the different ways you can affect satiety you know what are all the factors things like you know your food volume and the form of the food and how you present the food and the energy density of food all that kind of stuff is in there uh and so i won't go into that because it's, it's going to be quite a long podcast to get into that i'm anticipating the webinar will be about 90 minutes or something like that but some of the ideas you can use for implementing the satiety index like i mentioned before is to calculate the rough satiety index for your goals whether you're trying to gain weight even you might go with lower satiety index foods a lot of people that i work with who are trying to gain muscle mass i tell them to avoid eating stuff like potatoes or if you're going to eat a potato at least cook it in such a way that it's going to be easier to eat uh, or eat more of um, so you curate a list of foods that give you a, a fairly high average satiety index value and then that's your list of foods that are your go-to's and you build 90% of your diet around that you can perform basic food swaps within your current diet so for example swapping high fat yogurt for, yo for low fat yogurt to reduce the energy density and increase the satiety index there is a good way of doing things you can combine it with a loose tracking so you could you could track some things you could track the the low satiety index foods like maybe you give yourself an allowance of uh you know sugary foods of treats or something like that and then you simply track those but the rest of your diet you don't track i, I kind of use this with most of my clients where i i don't usually have people track things like their fibrous vegetable intake because it just provides a quicker easier uh frictionless way of tracking where they're not having to you know, weigh and portion out like five different things. If they want to have a salad, they can just chop everything up and mix it in without having to track it all. And realistically, I don't want to limit the amount of fibrous vegetables that they get in. I don't want to discourage that. And so that's one way that I do it. Uh, you could also do things like just weighing your protein so that you know that you're getting enough protein each day. And then the rest of your foods are just high satiety index foods. And it means you're unlikely to overeat on those sort of things. So, I mean, there's tons of other ways you can do it. And like I said, I'll detail some of that in the webinar, but uh, that's really the crux of the satiety index. Now it has its, its problems as well. You know, there's things like mixed meals giving different satiety values than a single food. Uh, there's things like personal preference. You might not like super sweet stuff. And so you might not want to eat that much of it. Whereas other people may like it a lot. You know, I know some of my clients really love fatty foods and other people really don't like it very much. So personal preference 
how your psychology interacts with texture and the smell of food, all that kind of stuff will have an effect. There's other factors like, you know, the, envir the environment you're in and, and, and tons of other things. I obviously go through that in the webinar as well, but just bear that sort of stuff in mind. As far as more resources go, I think that there's a really handy website called Nutrition Data. And what they've done is they've attempted to correct for some of the issues with the satiety index by creating their own index called the fullness factor. And basically uh, from the website, the fullness factor is calculated from the food's nutrient content using values from those nutrients that have been shown experimentally to have the greatest impact on satiety. And so that's kind of their idea. And they, they, they rank some foods as how filling they are per calorie. So that's a really good resource if you wanna get more of an idea of this. Um, so again, that's that nutrition data and they call it the fullness factor. The highest fullness factor foods are things like bean sprouts, watermelon, grapefruit. So lots of fruits and vegetables and the stuff that has the lowest fullness factors are things like butter and chips and glucose and honey and that kind of stuff. That's it for this podcast. I hope that gives you a bit more insight into how these indices work. They're basically designed to give us a general idea about stuff and we always have to factor in the context surrounding it. So it's very helpful to understand what the role is of these and what other factors contribute to things like satiety, body mass index, and blood glucose control. If you're interested in learning more about the satiety index, about how you can track your food or diet without tracking, then have a look at the webinar. I'll leave the sign up link in the description of this podcast. And uh, that's pretty much it. I hope you're all doing well out there. This is being recorded during the coronavirus thing. So hope you're all doing well and not snacking too much on stuff that's in your eyeline. It's hard when you've got like a packet of chips staring at you all day. But otherwise, I hope you're all doing well and I'll catch you in the next podcast. Cheers. Thank you.